Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is episode 18. We can't truly help people in this for-profit system. My guest, Christy Fogel, founded the Maryland Progressive Healthcare Coalition. She is an emergency medicine physician assistant and works in the Baltimore, Maryland area. Ms. Fogel is a progressive healthcare activist working with Progressive Maryland and their national affiliate, People's Action. Ms. Fogel was one of several activists who were invited to sit in as official advocates in support of H.R. 1384 in the first-ever Medicare for All hearing by the House Rules Committee. Christy Fogel, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to start. You're an activist. Could you explain why and how you became an activist? Yeah, so I'm a healthcare provider. I'm a physician assistant. I work in emergency medicine in the Baltimore area, which I've done for approximately the past six years, going on seven. I would say seeing some of the most egregious issues within the healthcare system with regards to for-profit healthcare and how it affects patients. And so seeing these things for years and years and feeling kind of like I'm helpless within this system to, you know, to help the patients the way that I want to push me towards the political side of, you know, activism and trying to support a nonprofit healthcare system like Medicare for All. And what were some of the most egregious things that you saw? Well, I've seen a lot of things over the years. A lot of the patients that come into the emergency department either come there as a last option because they have no insurance. And so they come in either with a life-threatening illness because they've been avoiding their medical coverage or medical care because they have no coverage, or they come in for just common primary care issues, and they're forced to come in for that because they have no ability to be seen by anybody else. So we're kind of like the last stop shop for them. But some of the other things that I've seen almost, I don't want to say worse, but some of the things that have shocked me the most are the individuals that are quote-unquote covered. And these folks will come in oftentimes for life-threatening issues And when you ask them the question, why did you not deal with this sooner? Why did you not go to your primary? Why did you not go, you know, to the specialist or whatever? Their answer is always, well, I know my insurance wouldn't cover it. And that's one of the things that shocks me the most because these people will often come in, like I said, with life-threatening problems that could have been dealt with, you know, had they felt comfortable that their care would have been covered. So those are some of the most I guess, serious things that I see, but I also see the folks that, you know, they ration their insulin and they come in, you know, with diabetic ketoacidosis, which is a diabetic emergency, which doesn't have to happen if you are able to take your insulin and your other medication the way that you are prescribed that medication. But many of those patients will come in and tell me, well, I couldn't afford the insulin or I couldn't, you know, afford the other medication that was provided to me. And oftentimes those patients are insured. And so that kind of shocks me the most. Yeah, so you're talking about the problem with underinsurance, which is, I think, a bigger problem than some people realize. Yeah. So a lot of people kind of like this myth that I keep hearing throughout these political conversations is that 
well, most people are covered. They'll say, you know, there's 30 million people in this country that are uncovered. But what they forget are the other separate 40 million or more that are covered, but they're, you know, they're underinsured. And these folks are completely forgotten about because it's considered that if you have health insurance, that magically you're covered. But there is no good health insurance. There's no health insurance that covers you universally or 100%. You always have to pay. And a lot of these folks can't afford to pay their co-pays, their premiums, and their deductibles are insane. So they might as well either not have anything at all or just go out their medical care as far as, you know, from a financial perspective. Okay. So you saw this. You decided to become an activist. And what happened? What did you do? Well. Early last year, I got involved with a Maryland group called Progressive Maryland. And through some connections that I made with Progressive Maryland, I actually attended a Healthcare as a Human Right Barnstorm event for Medicare for All. And it was a great time. A lot of activists came to this. And I wondered throughout the time that I was there, is there anyone that is kind of bringing all these groups together? There's so many progressive groups in Maryland and around the country that are working on Medicare for All separately. Some of them do work together a little bit, but I wondered if anyone had brought the groups together to build power around this issue, and the answer that I got was no. So I kind of went home that night and scraped together all the activists and leader emails that I could even find and sent out this email just wondering if people would want to, you know, kind of build this coalition. And that was, I believe, in late February, early March. Since that time, we've actually gathered all all or most of the progressive groups in Maryland are working on Medicare for All. We've got 20 or more national and state level in Maryland organizations that have a seat at the coalition table. And so we've built power around this issue. Um, we've lobbied our congressmen. Um, we've shown up to all of the congressional hearings on Medicare for All. I've personally sat in on every single historic hearing. For Medicare for All, we work directly with the Office of Congresswoman Jayapal. We're in the process of planning town hall events in the districts of the Congress folks who have not signed on to H.R. 1384, the Medicare for All Act of 2019. And we are also planning educational sessions and local resolutions around this issue. So we've got all of Maryland working on this now. We've really kind of built up over the past couple months. And I don't know if you mentioned the name of your coalition. Would you do that, please? Sure. That's the Maryland Progressive Healthcare Coalition. That's the Maryland Progressive Healthcare Coalition. And what have you found the most challenging thing about getting these groups to work together? Well, I work a full-time job <laughs> while I'm doing this. And that's one challenge for me is just finding the time because I get as you can imagine, a lot of emails, a lot of calls. Luckily, these groups are so motivated to push this issue that they were kind of like super excited to like come together. One of the ways that I kind of started this out is saying, you know, there were certain groups that wanted to focus on Maryland legislation, and then there were other groups that wanted to focus on just national legislation. And so what I tried to do is tell everybody, you know, it's not my job to tell anybody what to do, and it's not my job to tell people to not do certain things. I just want to bring us together. And so, honestly, it's been great. Like, these group leaders are just kind of rearing to go. So there really hasn't been any complication from that standpoint. I would just say time in the day, like hours in the day to actually organize and get the stuff done has been probably the biggest challenge. When you work with these groups, have you found a problem with that? They're 
messaging is not coordinated? No, because a lot of their messaging is coming from the national level. So, you know, groups like Our Revolution who have stepped up, groups like Healthcare as a Human Right, which have been doing this for forever, a lot of their messaging is coming from their national level partners and even from the offices of like Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. And so the messaging is kind of similar. I think that the biggest thing in Maryland is we've had Maryland legislation that's been discussed within the past few years. And so certain groups felt like they didn't want to mess around with Maryland. They felt like that's stopping short. We should just be focusing on national legislation. And so the messaging from their perspective was Maryland legislation is a waste of time. Let's do national. I didn't want to alienate the groups who actually do want to focus on Maryland because a lot of those groups not only focus on Maryland, they also focus on national. So they kind of keep the language open to if we could get this done in Maryland first, that would be really great. So we could get Maryland citizens actually covered. But they were also open to the national legislation as well. So it's pretty cohesive across the groups as far as the language nationally. But then just that little bit of kind of some people want to do Maryland, some people want to do national. How is the messaging among groups? You said within one group, it's consistent. Well, no, so across the groups, it's pretty consistent. So you'll have people out there that are wanting to do, they want Medicare for all, they want universal health care, but they're willing to kind of stop short at public option. And I can honestly say that this coalition, this is not what, what our message is. Our core message is within the coalition and within all the groups that are doing this, single payer, universal health care, not public option. And we don't want to do public option because the primary reason that we don't want to do it is it leaves for profit in the game. And our entire core across every single group in this coalition is for profit healthcare has got to go. And our language is the exact same on all of that. We have all agreed to that. Nobody brings anything to the table that's different. Early on in conversations, people had conversations about public option and it was just kind of we were like no we can't we can't do that because that completely fails the entire point of getting the for profit out of healthcare along those lines one of my concerns about the public option is that it basically would be corporate welfare because i think what would happen is that insurance companies would take the healthier patients and find a way to funnel the sicker patients into the public option which would raise the overall expense. So basically, I think you would have the government taking care of the sickest patients and not getting the tax revenue. You probably would. I mean, you're probably right about that. And that's one of the things that I guess has been discussed as being a thing about public option that people are saying this just wouldn't work because, like you said, the sickest people would be pushed on the public option. The insurance companies don't want to deal with the sick. Like, Make no mistake, there is no insurance company out there, there is no for-profit system out there that wants to deal with sick patients. Sick patients cost more money, and it takes away from their you know, underlying profit. So probably they would push it onto the government system, and it would decrease the ability of the government to be able to handle these patients. And then they would point to the public option and say, oh, look at the giant failure that a public option is and under government insurance, they would try to sabotage it that way. So that's the other reason why. A public option just doesn't work. I don't know if you're on the front lines, but what would you say is most effective when you talk to people? So I'd say what's most effective when you talk to people 
you have two sets of thought processes. So healthcare is a human right and it's a moral issue. And sometimes there's people out there that don't feel that that's true. They feel like healthcare is something that you should get if you just work really hard or if you just make all the right decisions in life, you'll have good healthcare. And so those are the folks that I can't really convince them it's a moral issue because they just don't feel that way. And those are the people that I kind of talk about the fiscal aspects of it. I say, okay, so if you don't think it's a moral issue, how about the fact that we're paying double what other countries pay for healthcare and we have poor health outcomes in those countries? And sometimes those people will say to me, oh, well, I had no idea about that. Like, tell me more about that. Or they'll disagree. Well, I don't think that's true. You know, and so I try to present them the data and the facts that that most certainly is true. Our health outcomes are much poorer than other countries. And we most certainly are paying almost double what other countries pay for worst outcomes. The fact that other countries out there have universal health care, they're able to cover every single citizen within their country and produce better outcomes for lower costs. And then you've got a country like ours who pays more and still has 30 million that are uninsured and 40 million that are underinsured. Um, from a fiscal perspective, it makes no sense. Um, and I also try to talk to those people about the fact that maybe they have never been sick or maybe they have. But when you go to the hospital, when you're sick in a for-profit healthcare system, costs are extremely, extremely high here compared to other places. What we pay for an MRI here is different than what they pay for an MRI in countries like Great Britain or Australia or Canada. It's so different. And our pharmaceutical pricing is out of control. So if you don't want to focus on it from a moral perspective, I think the universal across-the-board thing that sometimes gets to people is just explaining to them why this doesn't make any sense fiscally. And if they don't want to pay for the uninsured, they're already paying for the uninsured with insane high costs when people show up into the emergency department at the last minute because they had no other option. One of the things you touched on is that when you mentioned that, oh, we have the highest cost system with the worst outcomes, and some people said, oh, I don't think that's true. One of the things, a lot of the opponents of Medicare for All engage in, well, I have found they engaged in lies all the time. What have you found to be the most common lies that are spread about Medicare for All? One of the lies that actually makes me laugh out loud when I hear it, and I think I heard it in, in the um, Historic Rules Committee hearing on Medicare for All, I think one of the Republicans said this, is that in other countries, the wait times are so crazy that when you go to the emergency department, ambulances just have to ride around in the streets because emergency departments are so overwhelmed with patients that they just can't go to the emergency department. They spend hours just riding around. And the thing that made me laugh about that is we do that here in the United States. It's called ambulance diversion in slang terms in the ER. We call it going on yellow or going on red. So here in the United States, our own emergency departments are overwhelmed, partially because of the uninsured. But there's other reasons why, depending on regions, why we get overwhelmed and why certain days are busier than others. But we will frequently, quote unquote, go on red. And what we're telling the ambulance drivers is divert. Don't go to our hospital. Go to another hospital because we're overwhelmed. When we go in yellow, we're telling them, hey, slow down. You know, we're already overwhelmed. You can come if you really have to, but try not to. So it made me laugh to hear this congressman say, oh, they do this in other countries. And this is what's going to happen here in the U.S. We already do that here in the U.S. And the other thing is the wait times. Under a universal system, it has been shown that you will wait a little bit longer for non-emergent complaints. For emergent complaints, you will not wait longer for care to see a specialist. 
I'm going to give you one silly example of the fact that we also do that here. I have a good friend of mine who was recently diagnosed with Graves' disease. She emergently needed an appointment, actually, with an endocrinologist. She was referred to an endocrinologist that took her insurance. When she called, they told her the student's appointment available was November. That's here in the United States. So, again, it makes me laugh out loud when I hear them say all of these things that are just these awful things that will happen if we switch over to a single payer. But actually, that's what's already happening here in the United States under this lovely for-profit system. Well, along those lines, I watched the Rules Committee hearing, and I was thinking, boy, I wish somebody would have said, oh, they have long wait times in the country with single payer. I think they used England as an example. And I wish somebody would have said, so how are their health outcomes? Are they better or worse? And you know what the answer is. They're better. (laughs) And are their programs popular in those countries? And you know they're very popular. Right. With Brexit, one of the lies that they told is that they'll have more money to invest in the healthcare system if they would exit the EU. So I just wish somebody would have said, gee, they have better outcomes and those programs are popular. Do you think it'd be worth it if we did that? That one, the program might be popular, and two, we'd end up with better health outcomes. Oh yeah, and it'd be a lot cheaper too, wouldn't it? I just wish that would have happened. I know, and it's so hard because on the other side, the Republican side of this, there's just so many lies and so much fear-mongering that takes place, and the things that they say are just outright lies. Another hearing, I think it was the Ways and Means hearing that I sat on, there was a Republican congressman again who said something like, well, none of the people in this panel are healthcare providers, and healthcare providers will be the first person to tell you that a universal healthcare system will be a nightmare for them, and that they're going to be paid less, and that they're going to be overwhelmed with patients and all this stuff. You know, as a healthcare provider sitting in the room, I was again laughing to myself because under the system that we have right now, healthcare providers are overwhelmed. You know, we have insane amounts of student loan debts just to go to PA or medical school or nursing school or whatever. And we are already overwhelmed with patients. Only the patients that we see in this system could have been helped. I'll have patients that I'm like, sir, I wish that you had seen the cardiologist six months ago and not today for this heart attack because I think this probably could have been prevented type of thing. And so what it does is it creates this burnout and this feeling for healthcare providers like, you know, we can't truly help people the way that we really want to in this for-profit system, whereas in other countries, they focus on healthcare outcomes and they focus on reducing inflated costs. We focus on how to make more money, more money, more money, more money. And that's literally the purpose of insurance companies. They do not exist for any other purpose than to make more money for their shareholders and to decrease the care that they provide patients. What you are saying is we have a deny care system. That's exactly what we have. We deny care because it benefits somebody. Anytime you have a system where someone stands to profit off of taking away care from somebody, you're always going to have care that's denied. So if you take the for-profit out of this scenario and nobody's making money off this, in fact, we're focused only on outcomes as Medicare does currently with seniors, 
you kind of take away this denial of care. And when Medicare, you know, was signed in in 1965, it was also a radical idea. People thought it was insane. People thought it was socialist. People thought this will fail. And what happened over the course of the years since then is we've seen Medicare do an excellent job at negotiating and lowering prices. We've seen Medicare control costs. We've seen Medicare do a good job of covering its patients. Obviously, we, under the Jayapal bill, would want to expand Medicare coverage to dental, vision, and long-term care coverage. But Medicare has done an excellent job, especially in Maryland, the global budget that we use here in Maryland in our all-payer system, of making fair reimbursements to hospitals that are not inflated in an effort to keep costs down. So one of the things I think that people don't realize is that under our current system, doctors and their staffs spend a lot of time dealing with insurance companies in fighting to get the care they want for their patients. And the average doctor's office spends about $100,000 a year dealing with insurance companies. The other thing is that there are now doctors in the U.S. who are moving to Canada so they don't have to deal with the insurance companies, and they like it better from what I have heard. The doctors in Canada like their system, and they're happy with it. Yeah, I agree with you. And working in the ER from the insurance perspective, I can't tell you how many calls I get in one day that are pharmacy calls from insurance companies not paying for a particular medication. Uh, It's so many calls, and it stops me from doing what I'm actually doing with the patient that's there right now. It'll be like a call, hi, Christy, a patient was seen yesterday by Dr. So-and-so or PA so-and-so. And the insurance is saying that they're not going to pay for the antibiotic. And can you sit there and look up the patient and see if there's another antibiotic to switch them to? And so I'll take my time to do that and I'll look it up and I'll say, well, it looks like this patient was here for a urinary tract infection and they're allergic to X, Y, and Z, so they can't have that. And this is actually the best medicine to kill this bacteria for this UTI. If I switch them to this other medicine, They may or may not be resistant to it, and it's actually not the best treatment for this. And literally, the pharmacist will say, well, that's the only thing that they'll cover. And so not only does that cause a problem for the patient, obviously, it can become a problem because the patient will bounce back to the emergency department for another visit that they probably didn't have to have. Sometimes these patients will pop back septic, and it'll be, uh, my insurance wouldn't pay for this antibiotic, so I had to take this one. And now I've got a really high fever and I've got back pain. And so now it's turned from a urinary tract infection into a kidney infection. And it's turned into an addition to the hospital when it could have just been that they would have just paid for the other antibiotic and they refused to. So it doesn't even make sense sometimes. You just think to yourself, there's got to be somebody on the other side of these insurance companies who has no medical knowledge, who's making these stupid decisions. And ultimately, they're going to wind up having to pay for an admission now. So it's just silly. And the other thing, I was mentioning fighting the insurance companies, that costs money. That takes away from your time when you could actually be helping patients. Yeah, it really does. It's such a trouble to have to deal with insurance denials in any way. You know, in the emergency department, we're seeing people at the highest level of care. We order tests based on whatever the emergency is that you came in for. And we don't have a conversation with the insurance company about that because there's no time. Oftentimes, you're getting that test scan quickly to rule out a stroke. 
you're getting an MRI if you absolutely have to to rule out sports compression in someone who might emergently have to go see it to the OR with neurosurgery. So we don't really have to have the battle with the insurance company about that. Our battles in the ER come with, you know, medication denials or people coming in due to lack of insurance coverage. But in primary care, it's just never-ending battles with insurance companies denying and saying, well, did you try this first? Yes, I tried this. And oftentimes, what people don't realize is happening behind the scenes in primary care offices is that insurance companies will flat-out deny an MRI. The doctor will say, well, the patient needs the MRI. The insurance company will say, okay, we'll just do an x-ray first. Even though that's not going to show what needs to be shown, the doctor gets the x-ray done. Then the insurance company still says, no, we're not going to pay for the MRI. You have to have a physician-to-physician mediation conversation. And that's when a physician who works for the insurance company will have a conversation with a physician who's ordering the test. And oftentimes, that still gets denied. So it's just these ridiculous steps that you have to go through. And you know full well why they're doing it. They're doing it because they're hoping that you'll just give up and say, forget it. We won't do the MRI then. You know, there's really no other reason to go through these steps. Under a universal healthcare system that's single-payer, you don't have that issue. You don't have some random middleman person telling you, as a doctor or a PA who is trained to do this, no, you can't do this. You need to do this first. You know, and oftentimes these people on the other end of the phone have no medical understanding. They don't even know why you're ordering what you're ordering from a physiological perspective. You know, they didn't go to school for this. So it's literally just financial from their perspective, and it's complete nonsense. So before we end, is there anything that you would like to add? I would like to add that this movement is gaining... People don't realize that we've had four historic hearings on med- or, I'm sorry, three historic hearings on Medicare for All. We are working on having more hearings. That's never happened in the history of this country. There is an underground and actually becoming more of less than an underground movement that is going on right now. You're hearing it in the debate with the presidential candidate. Bernie Sanders has done a great job of bringing this to the front and center. But if people want to be involved in this, they should get involved. You know, we need more activists to come out and tell their stories from the patient perspective, from the healthcare provider perspective, because we need to dispel the myth that this wouldn't work or it doesn't make sense or nobody wants this, because polling is showing that the majority of Americans do want this. They would be happy to get rid of these insurance companies as being middlemen in their care. And I think that's the biggest thing is getting the myth out of here and dispelling them and having more people to come out and kind of revolt because that's what this is. This is a movement. This is a revolt against for-profit healthcare system that doesn't benefit anybody but the rich. I will provide a link on my website to the coalition. Christy Fogel, thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. Thank you so much for having me. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.